Hey there, uh, welcome to night school. I guess it's been over two weeks, been yeah, more than a couple weeks. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know that it's been a couple weeks since the last night school. Because I've recorded a few. I've done a few mobile episodes and I just haven't ended up releasing them. It's just kind of ended up feeling like, who cares right now? And I don't really get into the idea of releasing things after the fact. Like, if I can't release an episode, you know, within a day or two... I don't think I've ever waited two days. You know, the only exception is if it ends up too late at night, maybe I'll wait until the morning. But for the most part, episodes get uploaded instantly. And so, I don't know, you know, who, who cares about this? You know, I, you're not going to get anything interesting from me about why I've recorded a bunch of mobile episodes and haven't released them. Maybe I'll stack them together. Maybe I'll put them in reverse order and release them. I'll kind of go against the grain of what I normally do. But anyway, I do know I haven't released one in, a, you know, over a couple weeks. And, you know, just now I'm walking uphill and I realized, you know, I like hills. I've always lived in places that don't seem that hilly to me, but looking back, I'm like, you know, there's a lot more hills than other places. And for whatever reason, you know, I've always felt a lot more comfortable walking up a hill. You know, I was thinking about this street in particular, and I was kind of like, you know, there's something about this street that I always like, and I'm like, oh, it's because it's uphill. I like hanging out on hills. I like walking up hills. But yeah, some parts of the country don't have that. But anyway, as I was walking up this hill, I passed by this wigger who was probably, you know, it's hard to say, probably my age, probably in his mid-30s. And whenever you see someone like that, especially, you know, walking downtown, he's by himself, looks kind of fucked up. Like, you never really know if there's going to be an interaction. You never really know what's going to happen. Because the sort of person who never outgrew the wigger phase, while I have a lot, <laughs> I have a lot of space in my heart for them, I'm also very wary of them you know where if you're just like kind of walking down a secluded street and there's one not that they're dangerous but just like i said like you don't know what that interaction is going to be like because if someone is still a wigger in 2021 like if they never made it even a notch beyond that because you know if, if they look that way they got into that when it was cool like if someone looks that way today they got into it you know 20 years ago and to think that that person probably hasn't changed. It's not like they were a wigger when they were 14. They stopped being a wigger for a couple years. And now they decided to become a wigger again later in life. You know, that didn't happen. They, they've stayed a wigger the entire time. I bet you if you were to ask any single 35 or older wigger, they're going to tell you that they never stopped doing what they're doing right now. But usually there's some sort of drug involved. Like some of the guys that I grew up with who never moved beyond that. It's not like these were my friends or anything. But just guys I grew up with who were just really drawn into the idea. Like they saw other wiggers and they thought like, that's what I'm going to be. And not only am I going to be that, I'm going to stay that forever. But with a lot of them, you know, they fell into harder drugs. Like back then they might have smoked a little bit of weed. Like they always seemed like they were getting in more trouble than they really were. Like, you always thought they were from more broken homes than they were actually from. Like, one of them died. Like, one of the ones I, I grew up with who was a little bit older, he died 
some years back and I saw like these family photos of them as part of his memorial and I you know I was like holy he was from like a nuclear family like he was from uh like there's like a smiling like you can never really see you know you don't know what went on behind closed doors of course but they were like a really wholesome like his dad his dad had a mustache his family just looked really wholesome and happy like his sisters looked really normal and like in my head i was like oh yeah that guy comes from a single parent household his dad used to beat him up you know that's why he's like this you know pit bull that's why he's like this little wolverine and you're scared of even though he's wearing like a sweater vest and he has like the tips of his hair bleached and like combed down straight onto his forehead like you're terrified of him because he's like this little wolverine and you you imagine like he came up tough you imagine like his family doesn't have any money and his his single mom is you know busy all the time which is why he hangs out at the park and is getting into trouble at a young age and then you have moments like this where I saw pictures of this guy's family and his childhood and I was like holy shit like I didn't know that I was kind of impressed honestly I was like I didn't know that that guy came from like you know I mean I, I'm the one who came from a single parent household so I'm seeing this guy's background and I'm like oh he had both his parents at home his dad's just like kind of a dork with a mustache uh, everybody looks happy their living room looks nice <laughs> you know so you never really know you know, the kid that you think is the toughest gangster, you know, very well could come from, you know, a very decent household. That said, there were some of them who did come from really bad places, you know. I did know of a few of those wiggers who came from a really bad background, so I'm not trying to make a broad point here. I don't think anybody in the world has, you know, I, I would say that there are other people in the world who have probably attempted wigger analysis, but I will say I don't think anybody else has given as deep and cutting and correct of an analysis as I have done in the past and am doing right now while you're listening to this. And I'm actually at the state capitol. You know, I, I live in Olympia, and right now I'm on the capitol grounds. Like, literally, the capitol dome is right behind me with the sun shining behind it. And I'm giving you cutting and correct wigger analysis. But anyway, what got me going on this was just seeing that guy... And, like, he was clearly fucked up on something, or he's mentally ill. Because that's the other weird thing, is a bunch of wiggers ended up mentally ill. Which makes you wonder if there was something extra attractive about that way of presenting yourself to somebody with some sort of latent mental illness. Because keep in mind, like, when I knew all those guys, like, a lot of them didn't even end up going to my high school. Because they ended up in, at the, like, alternative, there was an alternative high school... And all the kids who went there were either wiggers or goths, but like serious goths. You know, you had to be like the, the most serious goth and have gotten into drugs. Because at that point, like the wiggers and, and the goths had a lot in common because they were like the only kids actually doing real drugs early on. And so, you know, only the hardest of each group, too, ended up going to this alternative high school, which ended up being, you know, worse for all of them. If you want to find drugs, you know, put all the kids who like drugs in one place. <laughs> you know, it just doesn't really make sense if you're trying to help these kids. But who said they were? <laughs> who said they were trying to help them? I think they're just happy to have them all in one place, causing less trouble in the other schools. But a bunch of them didn't go to my high school. So I, my only memory of them is really from junior high, which you think about like 
junior highs ages like 13 through 15. And think about that because like that's before you really start to see mental mental illness and addiction come out of someone. Like I was saying, like the Wiggers were the kids who were already smoking pot here and there at age 13 or 12. But it wasn't like they had weed around them all the time. Like it wasn't like even though they were into rap and all this stuff, it's not like uh, the 12, 13 year old Wiggers who were smoking weed were like maybe one of them sold it in very small amounts but even then it was like they certainly weren't sitting around smoking blunts all the time but just simply the fact that they had smoked weed at all and they were interested in doing it when they could made them you know kind of bad for that time for that age like i smoked pot for the first time in seventh grade so i was about 13 did it a couple times and i almost got in a lot of trouble almost got caught because a teacher overheard me talking to somebody about it and called my mom and that cooled me off for a couple years. But, uh, you know, so I, I tried it at the time, but you knew there were certain kids who they were like, not only am I trying weed at a young age, I'm giving you the image that I'm doing it all the time. But looking back, like, there's no way. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the resources to just be surrounded by weed. But if they were doing that then, and if they were as into, like, identifying with a, like, a drug subculture when they're 13 years old... You know, by the time they're like 16, 17 years old, like as they start to find pills and whatever else, coke, you know, alcohol, drinking more alcohol, you know, just as they find all that stuff, like they're doomed. You know, they're going to be doomed if, if by the time they're 16 and 17, they've been like maintaining this identity and, you know, they're just pretty much doomed. And then I didn't know them then either. You know, by then, it's like they, were, they weren't going to the same school I was, so I wouldn't have known them when they started to get into really bad stuff. And I also wouldn't have known them when they were the age that you start to see latent mental illness work its way to the surface. But it is interesting to me that, like, since I've gone back, and yes, I've looked, like, I've gone back and I've looked at, like, some of the Wiggers I grew up with that I haven't spoken to or seen in 25 years, I don't know, 20 years. And, uh... Like, I, I'm interested in what happened to them. Because you see kids like that, and you're just like, what is going to happen to that kid? He's cashing in all of his chips right now. Because that's, that's sort of the thought that I had with those kids growing up. Because they were always getting into a lot of trouble. And as it turns out, even when they weren't from troubled homes. And I remember thinking, like, oh, they're cashing in all their chips to be as cool as possible right now at age 14. Which is why they have a bowl cut, you know, parted down the middle with tons of gel in it, which is why they, you know, they're basically wearing clown pants that go down to their knees, you know. All the old men, you know, all those old man observations are real. Like old men getting upset about how loud a subwoofer is, old men getting upset about like how low someone's pants are. All that stuff is really worthy of criticism, <laughs> you know, but people don't want to accept it. Like people don't want to think like, oh, the old man is right. Because then somehow you become less cool because you're supposed to always take the side of youth culture for some insane reason. No, all those old men who make those observations are right. Like, you want to look like a clown, make a bunch of noise, get into a bunch of trouble when you're this young. You're cashing in all your chips right now based on what you think is cool in this moment. And so because they cashed in all their chips back then, they never really had the energy or the, the desire to change. 
like like they blew their wad completely on being that person which is why you don't really see them change and then i think another reason you don't see them change as much some of them is because yeah some sort of addiction formed and you know whenever someone gets addicted they're bound to stay exactly as they were i mean as far as their interests go their their identity like the way they express themselves like sometimes it gets frozen in time when someone you know becomes addicted to something particularly bad and so it's like whatever was cool at that exact moment that they became an addict is what's going to be cool to them forever and not that people should change or something but I'm just saying that it's like when someone gets stuck in some sort of like teenage identity for the rest of their lives, it's interesting when you find out they had some sort of, you know, addiction and people say trauma works that way as well, where sometimes if someone has a particularly bad trauma, they can be stuck, their identity can be stuck in that moment forever, I don't know. I don't know how true that is, but I've heard it, so why not repeat it? But uh, yeah, I mean the same, I've definitely seen it firsthand though with addicts where you know that's kind of who they are from now on and sometimes when I see somebody like that guy I just saw who's you know a 35 year old wigger and he's you know looks out of his mind one way or another probably in multiple ways I'm just like okay like I can tell when you got frozen in time this whole story is just so I can say that this guy that I just walked by you know I know when he got frozen in time because you can tell because his hat's turned to the side. He's, you know, sagging his pants, his baggy pants to, a, you know, a ridiculously low level to the point where he's, like, waddling. He's in a really baggy jacket, like a starter jacket, like an old starter jacket. You know, he's he got frozen in time at that point. Because what you see with, like, the ones who didn't, like, what's interesting is with, like, the, the wiggers who didn't get frozen in time is, like, you see where like some of them just kind of became like normal, respectable dudes. Like they just kind of like got a job and started a family. And you'd never really know that they were, they used to be this like junior high warrior who everybody was afraid of, but yet also found sort of clownish. Because that was the interesting thing about those dudes is that they were legitimately scary. Like even though this was the suburbs and we're talking about these 13 to 15 year old boys with bowl cuts and things and bleached hair like even though you know in reality they didn't have some tough background like even the kids that i was talking about who legitimately had a sob story like a, a single mom and like some weird dad story some sort of rough you know blue collar background and you know even those kids though it's not like they were from truly harrowing situations it's not like they were from the mean streets or anything but yet you know in that life like in just being a suburban kid you were kind of scared of these kids and i didn't consider myself weak you know i mean i played football i felt like i could hold my own you know in the time and place that i grew up which wasn't you know that's the thing is like when i grew up it wasn't like kids were punching each other it wasn't like kids were having serious violent interactions but it's you know it was a little rougher than it, it apparently is now like there were fights you would get into shoving matches. You would roughhouse. The extreme sensitivity to, you know, so-called bullying, like, definitely wasn't the way it is now. So there was some, you know, a little bit of roughness to it. And so I didn't consider myself particularly weak. You know, I felt like I, I could stand my ground at the very least in the hallways. But I was, you know, a little bit intimidated by the Wiggers because they, they were just... They were willing to fight. They were willing to do drugs. 
and even if a lot of it was a show, you know, as everything is, they were committed to that. Like they were going to fake it until they make it. I think that's what stood out to me about them is those guys, they were going to fake that whole persona until it was them. And I think some of them put so much effort into doing that, that they're like, I invested way too much in this to just become something else someday. So I'm going to be this forever. <laughs> you know, and I don't think they made a conscious decision to do that. I don't think they were like, you know what? I'm I'm weighing my options in life, you know, as to whether, you know, I'm going to be, a, you know, a, a wigger forever or not. You know, like they sat down, but it was just like as their life went on, that's just who they were. And then, yeah, like you throw in mental illness and addiction and that'll freeze somebody. And that's what they'll be forever. But, you know, I love hills. I'm a hill guy. And that's what I'm going to be forever. But, yeah, no, it's funny, too, to like, think about this. Because uh, last weekend, I ended up talking to those former mafia guys. I think I mentioned on here that I was, I've been in touch over the last couple of years with a guy who used to be a high-ranking member of one of the New York mafia families. Uh, you know, I've, just through my own enduring interest in that subject and the research I've done, I've... I've made some friends who are other researchers, even some writers and authors. And through one of them, I was able to actually talk on the phone with Michael DeLeonardo, who is the name of the guy. He was, You can look him up. I mean, he's on Wikipedia. He's everywhere. And I don't bring this up to talk about how cool I am. Like, oh, you know, I, I talk to gangsters. God forbid they find out I do a stupid, horrible New York accent and say dumb things in it. Um, but anyway, I found these guys really easy to talk to. It was Michael, who yeah, I've had some correspondence with over the last couple of years. So he kind of knows a little bit about me. We have a rapport. And then a friend of his, Sal, who was a, of course, his name's Sal. Fat Sal, actually. No joke. And uh, Fat Sal was a, an associate of the mafia, whereas Michael was a full-on. Not only was Michael a member, he was a high-ranking member. He was a captain in one of the New York families, the Gambino family. He he knew the Gottis as well as old timers, which is where my interest in, you know, my interest in the mafia is not completely, but mostly historic, which it turns out is this guy's interest as well, which is kind of how we developed a rapport. His, his grandfather came to the U.S. with his great-grandfather from Sicily, and they were both early mafia figures. Like, his great-grandfather was a mafia figure of some kind in Sicily, and then he moved out here with his son, Michael's grandfather, and Michael's grandfather ended up becoming a high-ranking member of what's now called the Gambino family in New York. And so there's a lot of history there. Like, his grandfather was very close to the early boss of that group, who was murdered in the late 20s. And so there's multiple intertwining generations. So Michael's this interesting bridge between two completely different eras of the New York Mafia. And he knows a lot of history through that. But he's also interested in learning more. You know, he's an intelligent guy. He went to college. Not that that's a measurement. I don't think going to college, obviously, I don't think that means anything in terms of intelligence. But for a gangster, you know, it's impressive. I don't know that I would even call him a gangster for a mafioso. Because I, I found him very easy to talk to. He's a gentleman. We mostly stuck to mafia history. He talked about 23andMe. And his friend Sal, who, like I said, it was saying he's a, a former Gambino associate who also turned government witness. 
both these guys turned government witness around the same time and they become friends and they're not too worried you know i was hesitant whether or not i should mention their names but i didn't want to play that silly game of like i i talked to a former mafia guy but i can't name him i have a little secret but it felt good you know i've been interested in this subject since i was probably 18 i mean before that like little i mean i liked some things you know i liked movies i liked you know gangster things were cool i guess when I was growing up, but it wasn't until I was an adult that I actually really started to research it. And it, this probably sounds more interesting than it is, or maybe it doesn't, but either way, a lot of it ends up being like going through old newspaper articles, going through genealogy, because a lot of the early mafia was formed by guys who were related to each other one way or another, guys who are from the same villages. So you do a lot of genealogy, you look at, you know, immigration da data, you look at immigration, uh, like ship manifests and you see like who came on the same boat like who immigrated on the same boat and that can tell you a lot actually interestingly you'll find that like some mafia guy from one group traveled to the u.s along with some guy from another mafia group and then you from there you can be like oh well these guys were clearly intertwined in some way and you find out more from there i mean it's a a very painstaking process, but it's it's been fascinating, like, what people have learned in the last decade, for example, about the early mafia. It's continually changing as more information becomes available, and people get better at analyzing it. You know, as more information becomes available, uh, people's skills in analyzing that information also becomes better. So it's, you know, increased our general knowledge of mafia history, like, tenfold in the last decade. If a fold a year, tenfold in the last decade, that would be a fold every year. But yeah, I'm just glad I was finally able to talk to these guys, talk to them a little bit on Saturday and then on Sunday for longer. And yeah, very easy to talk to, as you would expect, you know, as you would expect, like these guys are very good at talking. And, uh, you know, and I presented myself exactly who I am, you know, one of the guys... Michael already kind of knew the basics about me, but he, uh, you know, with these guys, like, there's this tendency for people, there's, it's, a, a couple authors have done it, there's a guy who runs a very large organized crime news website who did it, and there's a tendency for people who, who are interested in this subject to, like, pretend they're more gangster than they're not, than they are, and sometimes, like, they'll even use a pseudonym that sounds Italian, like, there's a Jewish guy who runs that website. He runs this pretty well-known, shitty, but well-known organized crime news website. And he's a Jewish guy who uses a fake Italian name. And he's been open, like, someone called him out, and he's been open about who he actually is. So it's it's the truth. He actually is a guy with a, a Jewish last name who goes by something Italian-sounding to give himself more credibility. I guess, like, you're not allowed to cover the mafia. You're not allowed to talk about the mafia. If you're not Italian or something, I don't know. The, I, I mean, I can kind of understand what these people are trying to do. It's just silly and stupid. But, I, you know, I made it a point talking to these guys, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'm from Washington. So, you know, I made it a point just to be like, you know, I'm from Washington and, you know, I'm, I'm Scandinavian. And we talked a little bit about, you know, my heritage. And it turns out one of these guys had lived when he first testified for the government he uh, lived in the next town over from where I grew up. 
So it's one of those small world things where he's like, oh, you live in Washington. Have you heard of Bellevue? And I'm like, I grew up in Kirkland, which he knew all about. Turns out I was actually living there at the same time he was. It was like 2003, 2004, right before I left. So we were both living in the same place, like one town over. It's basically the same town at the same time, which you never expect. You, know, you never expect to talk to like some ex-New York gangster. And it turns out when he first went into the program, they put him in you know, one town over from me when I was living there. But it was good to finally get in touch with him. You know, it's, and it, it wasn't until after I got off the phone that I was like, you know, this is surreal. You know, in the moment, I was just kind of interested in what these guys had to say. And like I said, they're very good at talking, you know. And uh, it wasn't until after I got off the phone with them, though, that I, I was like, you know, it's, it was kind of surreal to talk to a couple guys like this. You know, it was definitely surreal to talk to a couple people from that background at all. Because despite being interested in it for so long, you know, I've, I obviously have never met any gangsters. I've, I've obviously never met any mafia members in my daily life. Never spoken to them on the phone, so actually having the chance to do that was cool. But yeah, it was after I got off the phone that I started thinking, like, yeah, both these guys participated in murder conspiracies. You know, Michael's brother got killed when he was young. Both of his mentors in the mafia, their fathers had been killed. One of them, his his one of his mentors was the son of that early boss I mentioned who got killed in the 1920s. So you know, he was surrounded by people whose relatives, their close relatives, had been murdered in mafia violence. His brother was killed too, and his brother was his brother was on record with a different organization in New York. His brother was with a different family in New York, and I guess a drug deal went bad, and they killed his brother for it. And Michael was told, "You can't do anything about it. Like your brother was with a different group." He's affiliated with a different family. There's nothing we can do. If you want to get involved, basically, we're not going to support you and you'll end up getting killed. If you want to survive, basically, you just have to deal with the fact that your brother got into a mess and they killed him. You know, it's, it's something he had to endure to become a mafia member. And his mentors told him, too, when that happened, he said his mentors sat him down and said, hey, our fathers got killed. And we still decided to become members ourselves. So this is a guy who came from a completely different world. Obviously, he's, you know, a couple generations older than I am. And, you know, so it's like someone from a different part of the country, very different sort of upbringing, you know, much older than I am, a freaking former mafia member, high-ranking mafia member. But all that said, I found the guy very easy to talk to, which I think is probably one of those skills these guys cultivate. And, uh, you know, very open to questions. I didn't talk to him about his brother. I didn't talk to him about any... I just know that stuff from other information he's given. Because look this guy up, Michael DeLeonardo. He's a very... Uh, he's done some interviews. He hasn't cashed in as much as he could, which is interesting. He hasn't cashed in on... Uh, you know, he could have written five books by now, but he hasn't really wanted to. I think that he was able to keep a lot of his money, and so he's pretty much set for life. And... You know, at the end of the day, he betrayed uh, the mafia, and there's people who feel weird about that. But hey, it's none of my business. Without people betraying the mafia, we wouldn't know anything about the mafia, and I wouldn't have something that, for whatever reason, keeps my interest so much after all these years. I mean, it's almost autistic. Like, you know, I, I feel like there's selective autism where it's like, oh, here's this one subject that you get autistic about. It's like, there's this... Uh, 
kind of stereotype, and it turns out it's true about autistic people being into trains. Like, I knew an autistic kid growing up who was super obsessed with trains, but then it turns out that's, a, that's common within autism for them to get obsessed with trains specifically. There's even that documentary, it's really good, about the autistic comedy troupe, and it turns out they're really funny. But one of them is obsessed with trains, and he goes on to become a train conductor or something. He, he goes on to work with trains in some way. And one of, the, one of his little autistic tics is that he memorizes the train schedule. Like, not just the time that he needs to take the train, but he memorizes the entire schedule, and he can, you know, it's like a Rain Man thing. Like, where Rain Man, you could apparently ask the real Rain Man, the guy it was based on, what the weather was like on a given day 60 years ago. And he knows because he's read it. Like, he's gone through... Like, he's so hungry for data that he goes through books that tell you what the weather was on every day throughout history, like, known history, and he memorizes it. And so, like, it's, this kid was basically doing that with the train schedule, where it's like he just reads the train schedule because he's so hungry for data, and then he just can recite it. So he's extremely helpful. I mean, he was born to work in the train station, you know? He was born to work in the... But I find that kind of thing interesting, you know, and I managed to have this weird selective autism for one subject, which is, you know, mafia history, the mafia, you know, I'm unfortunately not autistic in any other way. I mean, some might disagree. I don't think I am. But uh, for this one subject, I managed to just have this singular focus. Like, I, I would have thought that flame would have burned out a long time ago. I would have thought I would have lost interest in the Mafia a long time ago, and it's weird to think now, like, when I first started reading books about it, watching documentaries, you know, just the way that you normally get into a subject. Like, when you, when you get into a subject, like, normally it's like you tend to start with the most obvious sources, the most obvious references. So, like, I started reading, you know, some of the more well-known books, you know, watching the documentaries and movies, and then to think that, you know, 15, 17 years later, I'd be actually talking to one of these guys. It's kind of surreal. But not nerve-wracking or anything, you know? I mean, it helps that I know this guy's in the witness protection program or used to be, or either way, he's no longer involved, so it's not like he's, you know, he wasn't looking to scam me. He wasn't looking to use me for anything. He's just a guy who's interested in the history of the mafia and wants to talk to people about it. Just kind of fascinating. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free.